Welcome to the Cedarville Stories podcast. It was a Wednesday night church service that changed the trajectory of eight-year-old Echo Vanderwall's life. After hearing missionaries share about the health care they provided for the underprivileged in the Congo, Echo knew she was called to medical missions overseas. Listen as she shares about the challenges of funding, the global pandemic, and living in a foreign country. Now here's your host, Mark Weinstein. Thank you, Sarah, and hello, everyone. I'm Mark Weinstein, and welcome back to another episode of the Cedarville Stories podcast. Today in the program, I am talking with Echo Vanderwall, a 1996 graduate of Cedarville University and the co-founder, along with her husband, Harry, who is also a 1996 alum of the Luke Commission, which provides compassionate medicine to the people of Eswatini. The kingdom of Eswatini is mountainous, located east of East Africa, and it shares a border with Mozambique. The Luke Commission was founded in 2005, and the ministry has grown from Harry, who is a medical doctor, Echo, a physician assistant, and their children, they now have six, to a staff of 650 today, and 98% of the team are from Eswatini. For several years, a team of Cedarville faculty, staff, and students have taken missions trips to serve at the Luke Commission. We'll get into more of the story of Harry and Echo Vanderwall's ministry on today's program. But for now, let me welcome Echo Vanderwall to the Cedarville Stories podcast. It's great to have you on the program, and this is my first time talking with you. So I'm interested in learning about your journey to Cedarville uh, and then ultimately to the mission field. So Echo, how did the Lord bring you to Cedarville as a college student? When I was young, I was eight years old when I was sitting in a Wednesday night service and heard some missionaries from Zaire at the time, now Congo speaking, and mm-hmm. they were talking about all the healthcare work that they were doing, and there are no, no healthcare professionals around. And I really felt at eight years old, even though it was very young, that God called me to work overseas uh, in full-time medical ministry. And similarly, when Harry was 17, um, he was called to work overseas, and then we met when we were 19. We met in university. Uh, we actually transferred into Cedarville as juniors uh, and completed our junior and senior year at Cedarville. Um, but yeah, very grateful for the foundation that was laid in Christian education. Um, definitely kind of propelled us into the next phase of life and thankful for the role that Cedarville played in our journey to the mission field. I understand after your graduation, yours and Harry's from Cedarville, that Harry went to med school at Wright State and you became a successful real estate broker. What did you learn in these years as a real estate broker that helped you prepare for what you're doing today? After I graduated, I was working in surgery and I got pregnant with triplets and (laughs) Harry was in medical school and we didn't have family around and we really didn't want to leave the kids home alone in and out of quotes. So um, I wanted to stay home with him. And so I guess desperation is, is a good impetus for innovation. And that's really what happened. I started working in real estate because I wanted to, to work, but stay home with the kids. And that ended up actually allowing us to be able to have a considerable nest egg when we went to Eswatini. And that's what we initially used as seed money to start the Luke Commission. So after you guys completed your school, well, Harry completed his residency, uh, did he practice medicine in, in the United States or did you guys go right to uh, the mission field? Oh, he, he finished in July and he took his boards in August and we came to Eswatini in September. Pretty much since he finished his residency, we've been in Eswatini. 
you were clearly focused on what uh, what was next. There was no wavering in, in anyone's mind uh, that you were going to Eswatini. Is that correct? When Harry was um, in his second year of residency, we were able to travel to Eswatini for the first time. And someone picked us up from the airport. And that very same day, they took us to a rural area. And in that rural area where we went, um, we found people dying all over the place due to HIV. And when we started asking why they weren't able to access health care, they said that they didn't have money for transport. And it's understandable that if you don't have money to feed your kids and they're crying at your feet for food, that you definitely won't then board a bus and use your little bit of resources that you have to go to a healthcare facility. So we just felt called when we made that first visit to Eswatini that this is where God wanted us to invest our lives. That's a neat story. And when the Luke Commission first started, it was basically Harry and you. And you've kind of alluded to some of this already, but what were some of the obstacles that you had to overcome to launch the ministry? Well, that's a long list. <laughs> uh, we have 30 not, minutes. <laughs> it's not a long list of obstacles. It's a list of obstacles intertwined with miracles, which were always bigger than the obstacles. Obviously, there's a huge learning curve, not only stepping into a new country, but also into a very serious pandemic um, at that time, HIV, yeah. and where we were losing the majority of, of our parents uh, and young people in our country how do you come alongside or engage in a compassionate way that honors your faith um, and what God's called you to in a culture that you don't know anything about in the middle of a pandemic? It's, I wouldn't say something that comes easily. You know, more recently we had um, in the last two and a half years, obviously the whole world has grappled with COVID. Um, but in Eswatini, we were dependent solely on South Africa for our oxygen supply. And so uh, in the middle of the second wave, we were only getting 400 cylinders of oxygen per day for the whole country. And our facility alone needed 200 cylinders of those 400 cylinders. So it doesn't take very much math to realize that that equation does not work. God used that to have us run towards a goal of being oxygen independent from South Africa. I really felt that in the second wave, God spoke to us and said we needed oxygen independence. If they don't have enough oxygen for themselves or whatever the resource is, there's no way that they can share with their neighbor. And so we ended up really taking a huge leap of faith um, and building an oxygen production plant, which had never been done in Eswatini to that point, still hasn't been. Um, and our team in 52 days built an oxygen production plant that then essentially saved the nation from the third wave. It's just an amazing, amazing, miraculous story that we've seen. So if you separate the, op the challenges from the from the miracles, it could be overwhelming. But when you see the way that God brings supernatural revelation and divine intervention um, in the midst of really, really difficult situations, you then begin to be thankful for the obstacles or the challenges. So it's that kind of balance, I would say, that's basically been present during our 17 years journey here. And one way that I know you've seen the, the work of the Lord is, and you talked about this just a minute ago about a strong national presence. If I understand correctly, 98% of your team are nationals. How did your workforce, your team develop with such a strong national embracing of the people? I would say maybe, Mark, you know, we, we've always been, maybe I, would, I don't really like the word, but non-traditional. Um, and it wasn't because we were trying to be different at all. We just walked into a total crisis with HIV and had to do some things that maybe weren't the norm in that process. Um, of God asking us to respond to something that was way beyond ourselves. 
Um, we had to be very independent, uh, sorry, interdependent on the national team. So while we may have been the medical side of the equation, we weren't the cultural or contextual side of the equation. You know, what we heard, in addition to the transport issue, we also heard that patients felt uh, maybe talked down to or ill-treated in the healthcare facilities. And, and that's a little bit endemic, unfortunately. What the patients would say to us is, if I have to be treated like that, let me go home and die. Mm. And the challenge is people would do exactly that. I'm not saying this is a switch that was turned on overnight, but I will say that we did get a revelation very early that if this is not deeply rooted in compassion, we will not be able to serve the people that God sent us to serve. And I really believe that the national team bought into what Jesus taught us when he walked on this earth. They bought into compassion. And so what we recognized is that we're expecting people to be compassionate, but we have never addressed the fact that they did not get shown compassion and don't have any idea what that looks like. And so first we had to take a step back and, and start to work very hard on our own inner healing as a team. I can tell you that this team is just like the most, I, I've never seen anything like it in my life. The unity, I mean, through the last two years, we admitted 90% of the ICU patients for our whole country at our facility. Now you would say that that's not possible. Well, it's not. But what I found is that a team of 600 people who are united around one vision and don't see what's in it for me as an individual, but what is the bigger goal that we're trying to accomplish or what has God called us to? What is he trying to get us to do for his, for his kingdom? I mean, they united. I, we didn't have anybody skip a shift. And I really feel that they are bought into the vision of compassion. I, I really don't think that it's so much that Harry and I build a team, but that God brought everyone together. Yes, he brought a team together that was willing to unite uh, around the goal of loving others as we want to be loved. We want to be treated in a kind and compassionate way, so why shouldn't we do the same thing to everyone we come in contact with? Your staff grew from two, Harry and yourself, to over 650, and that's impressive. But you also talked about compassion. Is the, the focus on compassion, is that what drove your decision, not maybe just yours, but yours and Harry's or the team's, for you to grow your own food, to feed your own team, to provide housing for your team right there on your current campus. Is that what, what drove that, uh, that strong desire? So I think that reliable and consistent services and provision of, of goods does communicate compassion. You know, we take care of between 700 and 1,000 people a day in our system. So you can imagine trying to take care of that number of people if, if some of those other operations are not running smoothly. Yeah. As I was reading more about the Luke Commission, I, I noticed that um, you serve mostly isolated and underserved people of Eswatini uh, with compassion, compassionate health care. That includes outpatient, inpatient, surgical, emergency, and critical care. Now, all that costs money. You don't just do that and uh, without funds. So how, how is your ministry funded? Initially, as I mentioned, we were funded with monies that we had made from the real estate development company. And then after a few years, um, we had, I usually say through reckless abandoned, uh, finished <laughs> that nest egg. And then we went to our family and friends and we said, hey, we're in Eswatini. This is what God's called us to. If you want us to stay there, we need your help. 
I call it the grassroots level funding, you know, because right. grandma gave you $50 a month and Uncle Joe gave you a hundred. And that's kind of how it was at the beginning. And that still remains what I call the super glue of the funding. Between 10 and 12 years ago, USAID, the United States government through USAID uh, came out and visited one of our sites. And, you know, they, of course, you don't know these stories till a decade later, but the lady that visited on that first site, she said, we found a jewel that day. And she said, this is how community work is supposed to be done. And they started investing in our organization. So they started funding us and, and they've been a very good partner. Uh, any United States taxpayer can be very proud of the way that their tax money is being put to use, at least from our vantage point, um, have been really a true partner in very difficult times, especially in the last couple of years. It is an area that we have to grow in. Um, our role in the country, especially now that we're only the only local oxygen production plant in the country and um, for several other reasons we've undergone some pretty extreme civil unrest in the last year which has put quite a bit more responsibility for TLC to pick up different roles in the healthcare sector and so because of that you know we've really been stretched in the last year or so um, on our funding streams but we are working actively to be able to further diversify the funding streams but up until now, God has been very good to us and he's provided even when things have been tight, but it's always, he's always stretching us definitely uh, in that area to trust him more. Well, that's what he does. He stretches us all the time and uh, it's not always fun, but it's always uh, important and rewarding. You talk about the, the way the federal government in the United States has funded a lot of your work. Uh, does that partnership hinder any opportunities for you to share your faith in Jesus with the people you come in contact with? Well, thanks for the question. I, I really appreciate the question. Um, and the answer to it is no. And I think that would be shocking if I was sitting on the United States side of the equation, but I'll try to unpack it a little bit. Country is considered a Christian nation. Our ability to express ourselves and our faith is very important. Um, and it's interesting that when we first came to Eswatini, we prayed with patients before they went to see the doctor and they would say our medicine worked hmm. better than it worked at other facilities. And we would laugh because we were getting our medication from the same source. And we would ask them, why are you saying that? And they said, because someone prayed for me before I went to see the doctor. So I would say from the very beginning, this has always been a critical part of our approach to healthcare. As it relates to how the United States government um, manages funding overseas, they fund faith-based organizations and are actually quite quite active in funding faith-based organizations of which is how we are, we are classified um, within the United States government. The only thing that they ask is that we not use federal funds um, to, to fund spiritual activities. So we do not do that. And the second thing that they ask is that you don't mandate to any patient um, that they have to to engage in, in faith activities in order to get healthcare, which was never something that we did before, even we had um, funding from the federal government. Yeah, as a, uh, as a Christian first, as a United States citizen second, I'm very pleased to hear how our government is not only f funding your ministry, but allowing you to do really what you, you were called to, to come, and that is to care for the people of Eswatini, not just medically, not just health perspective, but also from a a spiritual perspective. So how have you seen the Lord work spiritually in the lives of those people you are serving from a medical perspective? Healthcare is a very interesting space because at the same minute you're holding the hand of someone 
who's mm. who's being healed, you're holding the hand of someone who's dying. Yeah. And and that's the reality of the or or just the equation um, that that happens in the healthcare space. But I just am very thankful that God is the one that will bring peace, but he uses his people to bring peace. God is the one who brings love, but he uses people to bring to be the hands and feet of love. And and that's where I feel that we've really seen God in such a mighty way, because obviously in this type of ministry, you're ministering on an individual level, and then there's a collective outcome, I would say. Um, so I do think that that it's just the individual interactions with patients that you can, can continue to see, and not now just patients, but this team, the staff is just so engaged, so motivated. Um, and, and so to see that lived and played out, you know, hundreds of times a day just continues to yeah. be the joy of, of the life that God has led Harry and I to. That's neat. So as the years have gone by, Echo, uh, your ministry continues to grow, whether that's with staffing, facilities, or services provided. Uh, and with growth, your facilities need to grow in tandem. And back in 2011, I believe, you were facing a God-sized challenge of needing to raise a lot of money in a very short period of time so you could purchase your current property. Can you share with us the story and how the Lord provided for your needs? In 2011, uh, we were given a piece of land in the center of Eswatini, and that piece of land had squatters on it, and we had applied to the courts to move the squatters. There was an application process to do that. And in the process of doing that, crazily enough, the lawyers went on strike for an entire year and there wasn't a criminal or civil case heard for a year um, in oh our league. So we went back to our board in Eswatini and asked them, in, in your experience, how long does it take to resolve the situation? And they said between six months to 10 years. And we're like, oh, 10 years is way too long because we were really on top of each other um, at that point in the one house that we were renting. Um, God opened up a piece of land after this long journey of the legal system and everything where um, we were able to, on the 9th of February, 2013, we signed, or we looked at a piece of land on the 11th of February, 2013, we signed a contract to purchase a piece of land, which um, was going to cost about $160,000, which today is, doesn't sound so big, but back then it was a lot of money. Um, and we were told by the owner that he really needed the money quickly. So if we could have the money and pay by the end of the month, then he would give us a 10% discount. So of course it was February, you know, so there's only 28 days in the month. It wasn't even leap year. God didn't give us any call. <laughs> uh, and so we just wrote a letter, an email to our friends and family, the, the grassroots level donors I was talking about and said, that God yeah. has opened up this opportunity for us to, to buy, it was about 35 acres at the time. Um, and if you want to be part of it, please, can you consider giving? Cause we have this opportunity. And by the 26th of February, $171,000 had come in and we transferred before the 28th um, and got the 10% discount. And in 17 days, God gave us our land in Eswatini. So the, the new property is called the Miracle Campus. Why did you name it the Miracle Campus? We called it the Miracle Campus before there was even any idea of a campus or a land. Um, we just knew that God was leading us. We just knew, I don't know how we knew God was going to do a miracle, but I think he's a miracle working God. So I think we thought he was going to do a miracle, you know, Sure. and we called it that. And then we got the one piece of land that didn't work out. And then God gave us this place and the Miracle Campus stuck once we got here. 
So uh, for our listeners, I, I should ask this earlier, what, um, describe your campus. What buildings, what services do you provide on this Miracle campus? Um, on the Miracle campus, we, when we first bought the land, it was just a farm and it had one very small dairy barn on it. Um, we then moved. We were using shipping containers for warehousing. We have very large inventory because we provide a lot of medical services. And so because our we're in a landlocked country, our supply chain has to be pretty robust um, in order to not run out of the, the essential things, consumables. So we moved shipping containers down from our other site and we renovated the dairy barn as a logistical base of operations initially. And then we got really brought together an amazing construction team. We decided that we didn't wanna hire outside contractors that we wanted to provide full-time employment to a permanent team. So we, we hired a construction team. Um, over the years they've developed, we have our own steelworks team, plumbing, electrical, a plant, basically most of the subspecialties in construction we do have developed internally. Um, and they started building. And Mark, we just built at the speed we could. We didn't, um, you know, we, we wanted our team to have reliability and consistency in employment. And we didn't wanna do on and off contracts. So we built at the speed that our team could build. And um, we, I guess we're coming up maybe next year on our 10 year anniversary at this site. And uh, they've built 21 buildings, including an oxygen production plant that they built in 52 days um, wow. because they had been part of the team that in the second wave moved oxygen cylinders and carried dead bodies. And the whole team was very motivated, not just the medical team, to solving the oxygen challenge. Um, and they've just done an, an unbelievable job. We have a training and leadership center of excellence. That's the biggest building on our campus, was just finished in December of 2021. Um, that was born out of the, what are you going to do about the hearts and lives of the adult orphans that are working for you? And God really impressed in our heart that we needed a space to value staff development. And so this building is for training and counseling, the one that I'm sitting in while I'm talking to you. And then we have about uh, six warehouses that um, house the consumables and equipment um, that are necessary for the operations. We have two large wings of the hospital, um, about seven staff housing buildings that are built, uh, kitchen, yeah, several other support um, buildings as well. I mean, we've done, we do a lot of kind of crazy things on this campus. Like when COVID came, we decided we would apply to manufacture our own hand sanitizer so that we don't have to buy it. So we have a little plant that does that. And we try to really take down the cost equation um, while not sacrificing quality, but making sure we eliminate all unnecessary inflation in the cost. And so we've been able to bring many things in house to do that. I know in talking with Kim Jenneret, who just came back from a mission trip with you, it's very, it's a very impressive campus. And it sounds like it's a, you're a full service operation. There's, you're providing great needs and services across the board. As we move toward the end of the podcast, and I really enjoyed talking with you, um, Echo, um, as you as you'd imagine, uh, COVID was a major topic in in the United States across the world, for that matter. Um, specifically, how did COVID impact your ministry, both negatively and positively? I'll just start from the end of 2019. Uh, we were doing a lot of work in cervical cancer. 
because cervical cancer is the number one cause of death for women in our country, which is very sad because it's usually young women with children. And we had a small amount of funding for cervical cancer. We invested that in training for our staff and we invested that in good equipment. And then we had an assessment done, even though we had done an amazing job of training and getting the equipment and they really loved the program, they didn't think that it was gonna be okay because for us to run a cervical cancer program because we didn't have a room with a air conditioner to see the women. And so I was really upset after that meeting because I couldn't believe we're talking about air conditioner when women were dying from cervical cancer. But I went to our executive team and I said, we had had a building that we had been funded for the shell of the building. We had not finished the inside. Um, That was gonna be one of the major wings of our hospital, but we were using it um, with just like temporary dividers and those kind of things inside. So I went to our team and I said, I think we better finish this because I don't wanna ever talk about air conditioners and women dying again. And I don't know what the pressure was. This was at the end of 2019 and in January of 2020. There was so, I, I told Harry at one point, I've never been so tired in our whole time here. And it, there was no reason for that, Mark, because there was nobody and no entity and no organization and no funder who was putting any pressure on us. But we felt this major pressure to finish these two buildings. Do you know those two buildings finished the first week of March, 2020? They finished the first week of March, 2020. The second week of March, 2020 is when you started to realize that COVID's not going to stay somewhere else. It's going to come to us. Yeah. And it was just surreal. I couldn't. Great timing. I mean, the, our borders closed. We went into a massively hard lockdown. We couldn't get any supplies in from South Africa. It was really difficult at first. About a month later, God woke me up in the middle of the night and he said to me that I told you to build an ark. And I realized then that God was going to do something very unique on this campus. And um, during the COVID um time period. And in the second wave, um, this things got very difficult, as I mentioned, um, with oxygen, we built the oxygen production plant. Um, and then in the third wave, we had all the oxygen in the world that we wanted. It was just a, so such a blessing. And, and God provided us to have 55 ventilators. So we're actually running 55 ventilators at one time during the third wave and had 138 people admitted 91 in the ICU. And we were able to experience what it looks like when you have all the equipment that you need and all the oxygen that you need. And we saw significantly different outcomes um, with that equation. Although, of course, as we all know, people still die from COVID. Right, sadly. right, right. It exposed a lot of things that needed need to be dealt with or that need to be addressed. And I, I believe God is in that, you know, that he, doesn't, he wants us to thrive in him and he doesn't want us to thrive um, for the wrong reasons or to be pursuing the wrong things in our lives. And so I think sometimes he uses these kind of things to expose things that need to be exposed. And we saw that and we're still seeing that happen um, for us on the ground here in Eswatini. But you could just see God leading us. And it really went back to those core values um, that he gave us many years ago. The phrase, treat everyone last one, like your father, mother, brother, sister, child. You know, what do you do? What do you do when your mom doesn't have oxygen? Do you push her away? If there's no oxygen for your mom, would you ever push her away? No, you would love her, even though you don't have the one thing that she needs. And, and so God really impressed in our heart that it doesn't matter whether we have the resource or not, we will love no matter what. And, and to be very frank with you, we were, we were criticized on social media um, quite extensively at one point, even they called our facility a slaughterhouse. Um, I know that Mm. those were uh, naive statements because they didn't really know the truth of what was going on inside or the reality. Um, And we were the only facility that was willing to open its doors to that 
extent to take as many patients as needed to be taken. We'd never turned anyone away during that time. So, you know, the, it's very difficult when you're trying your best to love and you don't have oxygen to be called a slaughterhouse. I can tell you that's heartbreaking. Um, but God even used that, you know, like, are you going to listen to man, what they're saying? Or are you going to listen to me and my truths? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, obviously, we all want to listen to God and his truths, but sometimes there's a lot of chatter in the background. So I believe that God just used COVID for us. I mean, you know, I know COVID has been very difficult and I cried more than the second wave than I had my whole life begging for oxygen at every level of government that you can even imagine. I didn't stop anywhere trying to get source oxygen for the people that we were admitting, but God has used that. And I, I somehow can't resent it just because um, I've seen the other side of what he's done during this period. Yeah, the Lord, um, as he often does, brings us through difficult situations. This is a very difficult situation, not a not a situation you, you really enjoy and want to be a part of, but boy, the good that he's brought out of it is remarkable and God-honoring. Um, before I close the program with my last question, um, I want you to step back uh, and reflect just for a moment, if you would. So when you first came to Eswatini to today, how would you say the Lord has changed you and the ministry? I think like he does all of us, it's a slow, gradual change. Um, but definitely I, I believe that our hearts are softer. I hope I pray than they were when we came, um, that we listen more than when we came and, and that we are willing to be led more by not just the Lord, but also by other people in our lives um, and other circumstances in our, in, in our lives that if our hearts are tender and soft, that we can see the way he's trying to lead us. So I know that he's changed us dramatically. Uh, I don't think he gave us gray hair, though, or bad eyes, but that did happen in those 17 years. <laughs> um, no. <laughs> the natural aging process has definitely happened, but um, yeah, it's been, it's been a blessing to journey by the hand of the Lord and just to have him, I call them blind steps of faith. You know, there's a lot of times we didn't know what we were supposed to do, where we we're supposed to go, but he was so faithful to always be there to lead and guide us. And we really felt that he never gave us the next step until we took that, that blind step of faith, which was really in fog. Um, and so yeah. I believe that, you know, he, his still small voice is the one that is leading and guiding and, and, and molding us in the process. So. Well, I've been so encouraged just to hear your story and, you know, the faith journey is tough one because we don't know what the next step is until we take that next step in faith. So I, I want to thank you for sharing uh, your journey uh, with us today on the Cedarville Stories podcast. My last question, how can those listening to today's program want pray for you? pray for the Luke Commission, and then even support the Luke Commission. Thank you, Mark. Our request for prayer at this time, um, we are actually entering just now, the week prior to our huge civil unrest a year ago, and there are threats again of civil unrest this upcoming week, and so we really pray that God will bring peace to our nation um, and that his spirit and his will will be done um, in the in the situation um, in Eswatini. We would also pray for that you will pray for our hearts, that we will hear the voice of God, and that we'll never um, miss 
that still small voice that's trying to lead us and guide us. And we also pray for wisdom, um, that his wisdom will guide the decisions that have to be made sometimes in very difficult circumstances. As far as support, I think I did mention that I think we're at a bit of a crossroads financially. Um, you know, the, the ministry has morphed a lot over the years, and especially with the recent civil unrest and some of the other challenges at national level, TLC has ended up taking on a much larger role um, in the national health care framework. And while we step into that role with faith, um, it does require more resources. And so we, we would really covet the prayers of God's people that his resources will come from the places that he determines them to come from. Um, it's not been an area we've been strong at, to be very honest with you. We've done very little fundraising over the years um, and, and very little fund development. Uh, but it's an area that we have to grow in in order to continue to sustain and and seize the opportunities that he's put in front of us. And so we would ask for prayer that we would be able to um, follow his leading in that area where we do need to grow. It's an area we need to grow in. Well, I pray that you continue to uh, follow that still small voice. You follow where the Lord is leading you. And I know in my heart that um, those listening to today's program We'll, we'll pray for your ministry, the Luke Commission, and you and Harry specifically. And I look forward to hearing um, further good results and reports um, as Cedarville continues to send uh, missions teams to your ministry uh, in the coming, uh, coming years. So thanks for sharing your life and your journey with us uh, on this week's Cedarville Stories. It was great to be with you. And uh, I look forward to maybe meeting you someday uh, when you return to the States, maybe come toward the Cedarville area. It'd be great to meet you. Thank you very much, Mark. Really appreciate the time you've spent with us. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Cedarville Stories podcast brought to you by Cedarville University. If you were encouraged by today's episode, share it with a friend. Please rate and review this podcast on your favorite podcast provider. And connect with us at Cedarville on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And be sure to come back next week when we'll hear another inspiring Cedarville story for God's glory. Mm-hmm.